0: This morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we are now in chapter 7, almost midway in the book of Romans, and we want to look this morning at verses 1 through 13, and perhaps a few other verses in the chapter further down. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, Or reading. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law once, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. One of the most extensive treatments on the subject of the law to be found anywhere in the New Testament. In this chapter, then, he uses the phrase, the law, some 23 times between verses 1 and 25. And the phrase, the commandment, as many as six times in verses 8 through 13. And to set the context of his discussion, recall that in chapter 6, Paul had argued that union with Christ in his death and resurrection affords the believer freedom from sin. Paul dealt with that whole theme in Romans chapter 6, where he taught that we were united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and in consequence of that, we have or we are in a position to have victory over sin. And now the thrust of his teaching here in Romans chapter 7 is that union with Christ frees the believer from the law. So in chapter 6, union with Christ affords the believer freedom from sin. And here in chapter 7, the thrust of his teaching is that union with Christ frees the believer from the law. And of course, the big question is, what does Paul mean when he says that we are free from the law? That is speaking, of course, of those who have embraced faith In Christ as Savior. What does it mean to be free from the law? Oftentimes we hear that expression being bandied about. It is a scriptural expression. But the question is, what does Paul mean precisely when he says that as Christians, we are free from the law? Keep in mind as we work our way through this chapter what the Christian freedom from the law does not mean. The Christian's freedom from the law does not mean that having been saved by the grace of God, apart from works, works of the law, that the Christian is therefore free to live lawlessly, to live ungodly, to be at liberty, to live in sin. The sad thing is many interpret the phrase of our being not under the law to mean that being saved by grace, the Christian can therefore live anyhow. In fact, far from it, because as Paul declared in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, he had declared there in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. But then Paul raises a question in verse 15 of Romans 6. He asks the question, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, he says. The fact is, when one by the grace of God becomes saved, becomes converted, the Spirit of God comes along and affects the demands of the law in one's heart and life. Hence, one takes delight in pleasing God in doing what God says. In this regard, rather than being under the law, in the sense of being under its onerous, burdensome strictures, the law is within one's heart. This, of course, reminds us of what the prophet Jeremiah declared. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, declared in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, regarding life under the new covenant. Do you remember what the prophet Jeremiah declared there? He says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So here's the point. The Christian is not under the law in as much as the law is within the Christian's heart. The spirit of God through regeneration places there the word of God imprints it upon the believer's heart and mind. In fact, this is a kind of freedom from the law that Paul refers to in verse 7 of our text, Romans 7, where he writes, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so underlying the teaching of this seventh chapter of Romans is not that the believer is free from the law's demands, but that the believer is free from the law as a source of wrath and condemnation. That's what we are free from. We are not free from the demands of the law in the sense of fulfilling God's will Rather, we are free from the law as a source of wrath and judgment. We are free from the law as an instrument of condemnation and death. In short, Paul's focus then in Romans chapter 7, his focus has in view the law from its discouraging, defeating, death-dealing perspective. Now, let me say here, there are many people in our world today, and even in a morning like this, there are people in churches that would teach this idea that the way to get to heaven is to be good, to try one's best, to keep God's commandments, to keep God's law. As long as we keep God's law, they say, then everything will be fine. And what we have happening today is that millions are marching, presumably in their own minds, toward heaven, deceived as can be, thinking that through keeping the commandments, through keeping the law, they can come even an inch near to God. Let me say this, my friends, right up front, by way of reminder, you know this, the law does not save and cannot save anyone. Because the truth is this, that even if you and I could keep the law to our very best potential, and let's say we were exceptional in keeping the law in comparison to other persons, here's the point, that would not be enough to get us into heaven, because as we're going to see from this chapter, the fundamental problem of man is his heart, wherein lies depravity and corruption. So the question becomes, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? And Paul in this chapter is going to give us some indication as to what was God's purpose in giving the law. Why did God give the law? What was to be its purpose in God's program of human redemption? And the first thing we want to note this morning is this. Why was the law given? The law was given, first of all, to silence all humanity as guilty sinners before God. The law was given by God for the express purpose of silencing all humanity as guilty sinners before a righteous and holy God was given to bring all people every single human being from the most wretched of sinners to the most impressive moralist and do-gooder to the place where face to face with the holy and righteous God of heaven they are left with no choice but to admit their guilt and their sinfulness before him Look at what Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. The very time, the very first time in which Paul lays out the purpose for which God gave the law, here's what Paul says, and this should be a warning to those who would try to be good in order to get to heaven, who are banking on the fact that they are not doing this, they are not doing that, they are trying to be good, they are trying to keep the commandment. Here is what the Word of God says. The Word of God says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, that the whole world might be found guilty before God. That was why God gave the law. One of the purposes for which God gave the law was to what? To expose human guilt to bring men and women to the place where before the righteous and holy God, they cannot but admit, they cannot but acknowledge that they are as guilty as guilty can be having broken God's law. And let me say this, every single one of us, outside the saving grace of God, we are guilty of having broken that law. But here's a second reason. This is where we come to our text this morning. Why did God give the law? God gave the law not only to silence all humanity regarding their guilt to hold all humanity, guilty before God, accountable to God, but God gave the law for the express purpose of spiking transgressions. The law serves to spike Transgression, that is to say, to heighten and intensify sin in one's life. Keep in mind who we're talking about here. Not only are we talking about the unsaved, but we're also talking about those who insist on trying to keep themselves saved apart from resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Lord does in a life, my friends, apart from the saving grace of God and apart from reliance on the Spirit of God... All that the law does is to spike or increase transgressions. The word of God has bad, discouraging, disheartening news for such who would rest on keeping the law. And the bad news is this, that far from saving or sanctifying a person, the law serves only, watch this, the law serves only to aggravate the predicament of sin. You see, the law is like a mirror. The law only shows us our filthiness, how dirty we are, but it does nothing in providing us with the means of cleansing. It's just a mirror. It tells us that we are guilty, but it does not provide absolution from our guilt. That the law aggravates and intensifies sin is clear from Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Listen to Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Verse 20. Paul puts it explicitly like this. He says, now the law came to, listen, the law came to increase the trespass. This thought is amplified here in Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 5. Here's what he says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. death and hereby first we're given a telling picture of the believer's spiritual condition prior to being saved prior to being born again unsaved and outside of christ as we were the bible teaches we were living in the flesh as you here, hear the word flesh refers not to the physical body he's not saying that while we were unsaved we were living in the physical body that would be ludicrous that's obvious But the word flesh here refers to one's sinful, fallen, unregenerate nature. He says while we were living in our sinful, fallen, unregenerate nature. The nature with which we were born. He says that while we were living in the flesh, it therefore means we were spiritually dead. Because Paul defines living in the flesh in terms of being spiritually dead. If you live after the flesh, you will die. He says in Romans chapter 8, and alive in the flesh we were, yes, in fact, many believe that they were living it up, they were having a good time, yet the word of God teaches in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, that while we were in the flesh, we were alienated from God. We were separated from Christ, having no hope, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 Having not the spirit of God, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Hence, we're totally incapable of pleasing God in as much as Romans chapter 8 verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here's what was also true of our condition before we became saved and what is true of every person who is not saved, who is not a Christian, who has never been born again. Paul says there that our lives were marked by sinful passions. Our lives were marked by sinful passions. What are sinful passions? Let me say this, quite often there's a mistaken notion that sinful passions refer to illicit sexual urges or illicit sexual lusts. And that's a mistaken notion. Yes, it includes that, but more. The fact is, as a component of our fleshly, fallen nature, sinful passions refers to All kinds of sinful desires which express themselves in all forms of sin and wickedness. We see this, for example, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, in which Paul lists a broad range of ungodly expressions which relate to the category of sinful passions. Here's what he says For we ourselves, he says, Were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Here we see that sinful passions are related to sins of stubbornness and ill will. Sinful passions are referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 as the passions of our flesh. And it's to say, they derive from our fallen fleshly nature. They are the cravings, they are the impulses that are actuated and generated by our sin nature. The nature with which we were born. And according to Paul here, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, these sinful passions of the flesh are expressed as ones carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we're living in the flesh. We were giving expression to sinful passion. Now Paul makes a third statement, further highlighting the predicament of the unsaved, what obtains during their fleshly way of life. He says, while we were living in the flesh, here it comes. Our sinful passions were aroused By the law. You see what he's talking about there? Sin spikes transgressions. While we were in sin, while we were living for the flesh, and all the while sinful passions were raging within us, those sinful passions were aroused, he didn't say, by Satan. Yes, we know Satan was involved. He didn't say the strength of the temptation. but notice what he says. Surprisingly, he says this, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, the law. Here Paul affirms that as far as its relation to the sinner is concerned, the law, far from preventing sin, only provokes and incites the passions of sin. That's what he's saying there. Rather than sanctifying the sinner, rather than saving the sinner, all that the law does is arouses and stirs and aggravates our sinful passions. That rather than stymieing the power of sin, the law only stimulates and strengthens the practice of sin. In short, the law does nothing but stirs up the sinful desires of one's sinful, corrupt nature. Let's make this practical. Some of us, remember, you're in school and you see this sign... Do not use this urinal out of order. What do we boys do? We do just the opposite. We go and we use it. Why? Because there's something within us that in the face of law, in the face of prohibitions, there's something in us driving us to do the exact opposite. It begins even from infancy. You tell the child, don't put your finger in that socket, because you will get hurt. And what does that child do when you're not around? The child looks around, boom, sticks the finger in there. Why? Because of the stubbornness of human nature. And, the, and human nature, you see, has this thing about it that in the face of law, in the face of a command, it is incited to do the very opposite. And that's what often happens, is that rather than proving to be holy in life, here's a person, my friend, what I'm saying here is this, you'll find in certain religious traditions, for example, people take it upon themselves to lead a rigid ascetic lifestyle. They follow a litany of laws and ceremonies refraining from this prohibition so as to attain to holiness so as to draw near to God. Some even go as far as going further than what the law requires in suggesting that they're not going to get married because they want to be holy. And what often happens is this, that rather than proving to be holy in life, these people give themselves over to all kinds of sinful, depraved corrupt deeds. We hear a lot of that today. We think of what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church, how often we hear of priests being engaged in some of the most wicked, immoral acts. And let me here to say the same is true in many an evangelical church. How many in certain traditions that have this idea of what they call strict ascetic holy living where they are following a list of laws following a list of rules following a list of regulations rather than becoming more holy what happens they become more depraved more corrupt more sinful at heart and in life the law does not save us the law does not sanctify us all that the law does is to spike transgression, is to increase sin. My friends, you neglect faith and trust in Christ alone. For your righteousness, you look to depending on law to save you, following a list of rules and regulations, and see what will happen. That will not get you into heaven. What you're left with is nothing but a heart of mess and a life of all kinds of corruption and depravity. That's what the law does. The truth is in the life of one who has not come to faith in Christ but is resting on performing the law, in doing the law, the law does nothing but incite and aggravate sin. Now notice what we're further told in verse 5 of our text, Romans chapter 7, regarding the unsaved, regarding what was true of us believers in Christ before we came to saving faith in Christ. Not only was it that we were living in the flesh, possessed by sinful passions, which were aroused, which were aggravated by the law, but that those sinful passions, Paul tells us, were at work in our members to bear fruit, not of a good kind, but fruit for what? Death. Keep in mind when Paul speaks of our members in the book of Romans, what is he referring to? We have said this time and again, he's referring to the physical parts, the parts of our physical bodies. The truth, my friends, is this, that sinful passions work in our bodies, various parts of our bodies. They work, for example, in our tongues, inciting us to speak evil, to give expression to cursings, to bitterness, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 14. Sinful passions work in our ears, inciting us to listen to that which is false, to that which is unwholesome, to listen to anything but the word of God. And just as it was with Eve, sinful passions work in our eyes, inducing us to lust and covetousness, and so on and so forth. And the end result of these expressions of sinful passions, in our members the word of God declares, is what? Death. Death. I've heard that's a frightful, miserable reality of the law in terms of its function in the unsaved. Now from verse 5, it becomes clear that then, that to be under the law, to be under the law, is to be at one and the same time living in the flesh. Which means that if a person is not saved, that person is under the law. Under the law in terms of its condemnation, under the law in terms of its curse, under the law in terms of wrath and judgment for having broken God's law. Now, in verses 7 through 13, Paul further expands on this truth that the law spikes and intensifies sin. And because this argument that the law provokes and incites sin could be easily mistaken, could be easily interpreted to mean that the law is complicit with sin and that the law is therefore not of God, Paul, in anticipating this objection, look at what he does in verse 7. He raises in anticipation, in anticipation of an objection, he raises a question in verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? In other words, if the law intensifies transgression, if the law arouses our passions, our sinful passions, causing us to commit sins that lead to death, Paul asks the question then, is the law therefore sin? He says, by no means. In other words, perish the thought. No way is what he's saying. And what he does then, in verses 12 through 16, Paul takes time to underscore the sanctity and integrity of the law. Paul says, just in case you think I'm suggesting that the law is sinful, just the very opposite. The law, notice verse 12, he asserts, is holy. The law is holy. The commandment, a synonym for the law, he cites as being holy and righteous and good. And you ask the question, why is the law holy and righteous and good? The simple answer would be this, because the law reflects the very character of God who himself is holy and righteous and good. Again, verses 13 through 16, he characterizes the law as being good. And then he caps it up in verse 14 by affirming For we know that the law is spiritual. Here's the problem now, what Paul is saying. The law is good, but there's a problem. What is that problem, Paul? I am of the flesh, sold under sin. What is Paul saying there? Paul is saying here that even though the law stirs and aggravates and intensifies sin, the passions of sin in the unsaved the law, far from being sinful, is in fact good and holy. Here's what he says: I've found the real enemy, and the real enemy is my own heart. The problem is with me, he's saying. And with that said, Paul gets into the heart of the matter, which is to demonstrate thirdly, and here's the third point of our sermon: not only is it that the law, not only is it that the law shows us our sins, and does it stimulate sin and aggravate sin and spike sin but notice the law shows us our sinfulness the law shows us our sinfulness listen my friends what is the purpose of the law we could say put it like this the purpose of the law is that it serves to accentuate the ugliness of our corrupt depraved hearts the law accentuates the ugliness of our corrupt, depraved hearts. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul had clearly stated this when he wrote, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That is to say, they will not be saved by the law. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, beginning with the deep part of verse 7, notice Paul elaborates on the fact that the law shows us how sinful we are. How sinful are we, Paul? Look at what he says, verses 7 and following. He says this. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The King James Version says that sin might appear exceedingly sinful. By way of summary, Paul is saying then that in the absence of the law, sin was, as it were, dormant. He never understood himself to be a sinner just as all their people complacently going along today thinking that they are so good, so holy. Why? Because they have never been brought face to face with the grim reality of their sin, the gravity of their sin. Why? Because the law, they have never been exposed to the threats of the law. They have never been exposed to God's holy standard. And hence, they lead lives of complacency thinking that somehow by their goodness they will make it to heaven, Paul says that with the coming of the law and its prohibition of covetousness came an occasion for committing the very sin of covetousness. In this way, the law stirs and stimulates transgressions, exposing the filthiness, the corruption of his heart. And that is why it is against this background that Paul speaks in this chapter of the need for freedom from the law. Paul suggests it is not because the law is sinful and evil, but precisely because we are sinners, because we are evil at heart, the law rightly and justly condemns us. The law rightly exposes the filthiness and corruption that lies in our hearts. What then is the central Message The overarching conclusion of this grim truth it is this the bottom line is this that apart from the saving grace of God in Christ, you and I, regardless of how much willpower we muster, regardless of how much we are determined to live right, to live holy, we could have New Year's resolutions, we could have all the discipline in the world. Here's the point apart from the saving grace of God and the empowering of the Spirit of God we find ourselves in an attempt to keep the law, experiencing what? Frustration upon frustration upon frustration. Read Paul's account here, it's right here in the chapter. Verses 15 through 24, Paul says, The good that I want to do, I find I can't do. Every time I'm yearning after the law of God, I want to do it. I want to live right. I want to be holy. But what I find is that evil is present within me. What was Paul led to do in the very end? He cried out, he said, Oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul is saying, look, to attempt to keep the law will only end in utter Failure and frustration. So that in answer to the question why then the law, Galatians chapter three, verse nineteen says this, very much in line with the thrust of our text. Paul says in Galatians three verse nine the purpose of the law was this it was added because of transgression. It was added because of transgression, and the word there because of the word that is translated there because of is ambiguous. In the Greek, because the word translated there, because of, can also mean for the purpose of. So let's look a bit at this very quickly. It's it's not quite clear what is Paul intended, meaning if we take the word to mean for the purpose of, then the idea would be this, that the law was added for the purpose of generating or effecting transgressions. In other words, the law was given to bring out the worst in us, is what Paul would be saying. If we take the word to mean because of transgression, then possibly the sense of the expression would be that the law was given to check or curb transgressions. Which is which? Your guess is as good as mine. Because in a real sense, both would be applicable. The law was given, we know, based on what Paul is teaching in this chapter, the law was given to spike, to increase, to intensify, to aggravate transgression. At the end of the day, this is what we can say, that in his saving, redeeming purposes, in his saving, redeeming plan, God added, that is, gave the law to sinful man. Why? To show him in the most sobering way the enormity of his sin and to expose his utter sinfulness. It was to highlight his helplessness and bondage Under the law, Paul exemplified that as we said in verses 14 through 25, we're at the very end, he's asked the question, who will deliver me? He says, I'm a wretched man, I'm filthy. Because the law has exposed my sin, is what he's saying there. The law was given, God added the law for the express purpose of showing man his sinfulness and hence his utter helplessness to redeem himself. And most important, to point him to his need of a savior, to point him to his need of a redeemer, who, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was and is without sin, the one who, by his perfect obedience to the law, satisfied in full the demands of the law so as to set us free from its curse and condemnation, the word of God teaches he died, he paying the curse, of the law that was leveled against us. And the wonderful glorious news this morning as I close, we're not going to finish this, but I'm going to bring it to a close, is that through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the bondage and condemnation of the law has been canceled, has been nullified. And it is in that sense that we are free from the law. We are not free from the law to live anyhow. We are free from the law in what respect? in terms of its condemnation, in terms of its curse. We are free from the law because Christ became a curse for us, because Christ took upon himself in paying for our sins, our sins, for the law which we broke, and for the curse which we incurred. Christ absorbed that. Hence we are free. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. Free from the law we are. We are redeemed from the law. May God richly bless these words to our hearts. If you are not saved, maybe you're the kind of person who who, uh, thinks, well, you know, I'm good enough, and as, as long as I try, God knows my heart, he will see me through, he sees how sincere I am, that's not how it works. God does not grade us on the curve. God, when we stand before him, will not judge us on the basis of how much of the commands we kept, not at all. In fact, he's not going to judge us on so much on the basis of how many of the commands we kept, how much of the law we kept, as whether or not we had accepted the payment of the Lord Jesus Christ for sins. If you have not yet done so, I encourage or invite you to come to him, rest in him, and him alone who is our righteousness. Amen.